gifts I get is less and less and less, which is odd. So either two things are happening. One is I do such an amazing job (laughs) that I just take away all the questions everyone asks. Or the other thing is I do such a horrible job and no one says I'm gonna, no one wants to ask me questions because I'm just, I suppose there's a middle ground there. Uh, I enjoyed the questions that were put in. Hopefully next time, uh, be thinking about some questions because this is gonna come up. And so if during the year you have a question and you don't feel like asking me right then and there, though lots of people do come up to me, um, but even then, if you come and ask me a question, you can make a note somewhere and start this pile. And the next time I've asked the pastor Sunday, everyone can bring in their wheelbarrows. (laughs) Dump them back there. So I've got four and hopefully five questions that I'm going to cover today. We'll see how long it takes. Um, Do I have a volunteer to reach into the basket and pull out? Thank you, Jacoby. I was hoping you would. Thank you. Oh, I thought I was supposed to. Nope. (laughs) The question is, there's been a lot of grief in our church. What does the Bible say about grief? Great question. Of course, my policy is there are no such thing as bad questions when it comes to the Bible, God, and his ways. Grief. Grief is hard. We would all admit that. No matter when it happens, no matter what the subject is, grief is very hard. We can grieve over so many different things, but I would say one of the hardest things to grieve over is death. When someone dies, it's like part of yourself is cut off and thrown away, never to be had again. It's a a pain that we cannot fully understand or grasp unless we have gone through it ourselves, And everyone grieves in a different way, and that feeling is different for every single person. Now, I said that it's like a part of us has been thrown away, never to be gotten back. But that's a feeling. It's something that seems to be. And I'm grateful that in Christ, what we lose we will get back. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 14. He says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. A few things to note. First off, we have hope. We have hope. When someone who is a believer dies, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we will see that believer again in paradise. I, in my position, have an opportunity to talk with lots of people. And I hear stories about people who I've never met. And it is so neat to think that when I hear stories about someone's godly grandmother or grandfather, their godly best friend, and I can look at the person and tell them I am so looking forward to meeting that person someday. The hope that I have, the hope that we have, that all that is lost will be found again. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the resurrection. 
I'm looking forward to preaching that once we get to there in 1 Corinthians. There it says that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God will raise to life all those who have died in him. So when we say goodbye on this earth, it's not a complete goodbye. It's an until we meet again. And after a very long trip, we will step through a door and see our loved ones again in a place where there is no more sin, no more sickness, no more separation. And that will be a glorious day. In Christ, through grief, we have hope. Now, that is for people who have died in Christ. Many of us have experienced death of someone who has not died in Christ. And the hope to see them again is not there. And that pain, that pain is deeper than can be imagined. Because it's a double pain. It's a pain for the loss that we have, that we will never see that person again, and it's a pain, too, for what they are experiencing because of not turning to Jesus. But that brings us to the second point. Until the day when Christ calls us home, there is grief, and it is okay to grieve. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says that we do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. He, he didn't say that we don't grieve. He just says that our grief is different because we have a hope. Number one, a hope that we will see our loved ones again if they've died in Christ. But number two, we have a hope because we have a God who is with us through even inconsolable pain. We do not grieve alone. Moses writes in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6. He says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, your enemies. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. This is a promise that's repeated in Hebrews, that our God will never leave us or forsake us. So even in the bitterest grief, even when we feel like we have been kicked to the curb, that God is not there because of the pain that we're experiencing, we know that God hasn't forgotten us. In those moments, we can realize the fullness of God's character in a way that we would never know it before. That yes, God is the holy, just, righteous judge of the universe, but then he also, we see that he is the compassionate, loving. He's the compassionate, loving, and merciful father. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 42 verse 3, he says, a bruised reed God will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In other words, God is a God who has compassion on the broken things. When other people would say, get over it, cut the emotion out of your life, it's just pulling you down, he is the one who lifts you up under your emotion and gives you the ability to carry the burden. I think about Jesus. When his friend Lazarus died and he saw all the grief around him, he joined into the grief described in the shortest verse in the Bible and the first verse I ever memorized in vacation Bible school. Jesus wept. When we weep, our Savior weeps with us through the grief as he enters in compassionately. He guides us in that grief to look forward. 
He reminds us through the tears the purpose in our life. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4, Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Through the tears we are able we're able to take our grief and our brokenness and we're able to help others. Sometimes we can help others who go through similar situations. We have a lot of people in our church whose spouses have died and it's been a joy to see them gathering with each other and helping each other through the grief. Sometimes we're able to help people through situations that are completely different. But either way, through suffering, we've been able to know God and gain a sensitivity to him and life in a way that we never would have before and others do not have. And we can take that knowledge and sensitivity to help others in need. God, through our grief, gives us purpose. And through this grief and other venues, we're reminded that God does indeed bring good out of all things, even the pain of death. And one day, all this grief will be over. One day, Jesus will wipe away. He'll wipe away all tears, and he'll usher us into glory. As the hymn says, what a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see and I'll look upon his face. The one who saved me by his grace and he takes me by his hand and he leads me into the promised land. What a day, glorious day that will be. Jacoby, way to pick a tearjerker. Yes, you are. Yep. <laughs> Good question. Thank you for the person who submitted that question. Jacoby, you want to pick another one? Okay. <laughs> nope, that's okay. I could take it. <sighs> All right. This is actually left over from the last time we had asked the pastor Sunday. 1 Corinthians 3, 21 to 23, uh, verse 22. Can you explain the all is yours part? So, 1 Corinthians 3, 21 to 23 says, So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are of Christ and Christ of God. It's a great passage. We're actually going to be studying the greater context of that passage in a couple weeks since we're in 1 Corinthians this year. So we will get there. Um, but since this question is here, let me dive into these couple verses. Uh, Paul, in the context, if you start in the beginning of chapter 3, Paul begins this section bemoaning the fact that he has to address the Corinthians as immature spiritual people. He wants to address them as mature spiritual people, but instead he has to address them as worldly people, infants in Christ. A symptom of their infancy is how they argue uh, about which Christian superstar they're following. We studied a little bit of that when we talked about unity last week. 
1 Corinthians 3, 4, Paul says, for one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not mere human beings when you say that? And he spends 11 verses then from 3, 4 up there to 20, verse 25, explaining that humans are merely humans. God uses us to accomplish his work, but ultimately is him doing the work, not us. He is able to use us because, as he says in verses 16 to 17, we are his temple. Don't you know, he says, that you are yourselves God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred and you are together. You together are that temple. God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, dwells in each Christian, and he dwells in us as a whole, too. By his spirit, we are able to minister, and he is able to use us. We are his temple. He uses us. We're not special. He is. He then finishes up that section talking about, oh, you horrible Corinthians, you're infants. Humans can't really do anything except God working in them. He then finishes up the section in verses 18 to 23 and says, do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this this world is foolishness in God's sight. As As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas of the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. You are of Christ, and Christ is of God. So he says that we are not to boast in what we can do or in what someone else can do because we are only human we're able to know and we're able to do because of God's spirit within us. The minute we start boasting in someone's leadership, saying that we are of this person, we are denying God's work, pinning it to a human when we should always be focusing on God. So instead of boasting, instead of all that, he says, all things are ours. In one sense, what he means is God has given the Holy Spirit God's spirit has given us people to encourage the church. Paul and Paulus are servants who labor under the master Jesus Christ. We are all that. So all things are ours in in the sense that each one of us has gifts to help the other person. We belong to each other. The church, all of us are ours to help each other point us to God. That is one sense of what's going on. But Paul is tricky because lots of times he slaps a really quick phrase in there and he's meeting multiple things by that quick phrase. Some people would call him lazy, but he isn't. So the second sense is not only do Christians belong to each other, but in Christ, all things are ours. Paul says the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are ours. We don't need a human to give us special knowledge or information or reputation or leg up in the world. We all have equal shares of the Holy Spirit. We're all able to understand scripture. We're all able to have what we need to live a sufficient life in Christ. We're all able to serve God and do good works in godliness. We're all able to adequately explain the truths of God to each other. We don't need the pastor to do it. We all can do it. Therefore, we cannot say that one person is more important than the other. We cannot have competition or rivalry because we all have an equal share in the blessings which come from Christ. We cannot, one person cannot say, you need me in order to understand this part of scripture because all things are ours. Paul is saying, get your eyes off of men, whether it is your favorite Bible teachers, your favorite commentaries, your favorite pastors, your favorite own thinking, and put your eyes on Christ. He is the one who gives us what we need. It's all about him. An output of that, an application, is that we're having a hard time listening to another Bible teacher or pastor 
because we're caught up in the person or their teaching style, Paul says, stop it. Our goal is to know Christ and to know him however we can. He is able to use everyone. He's able to use everything to push us to him. If you have any more questions about that, that is a really quick overview of that passage. But again, we'll get there. You want to pick another question, Jacoby? You're getting your exercise today. Choose wisely. No. (laughs) No. Here we go. Ah. Okay. He didn't even read it. Uh huh. Another question from the last time. How do you think the millennium will look like? We've gone through many different ages in world history. Will we be able to recognize it? Great question. As I said, there are no bad questions. Many scriptures point to the millennium and describe it. Isaiah has a bunch of them. Unfortunately, as you, if you study Isaiah, you have to have some caution because scriptures about the millennium and scriptures about the eternal kingdom are all intertwined and they go back and forth. You've got to follow the wording and all of that. Um, the easiest passage to discuss about the millennium would be Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 10. This is a passage I've referred to many times in sermons. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 10. John says, I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over and Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand on the seashore. They march across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city loves. The fire came down from heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So, Uh, I could take this passage and probably preach about 10 weeks on it at least. Um, And I'm going to try to talk about that passage for two minutes. We get the name millennium. It means 1,000. And we get the name millennium from 1,000 years. That is repeated multiple times in this passage. One, two, three, four times in this passage. 1,000 years. We uh, who believe in uh, a literal interpretation of Revelation believe that there is going to be a literal 1,000 years where Jesus is going to literally and physically reign the world from Jerusalem, sitting on a throne there. Scripture talks about this in Revelation, talks about in Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah. During this time, Israel will be gathered from the ends of the earth And what has been promised in the covenant given to Abraham and the covenant given to David that has not been fulfilled yet will be fulfilled in the millennium kingdom. 
since Jesus is literally and physically ruling on earth during this time, Isaiah 32 tells us that it's a time of peace. Isaiah 61 tells us it's a time of joy. Isaiah 40 says that it's a time of comfort because that's what happens when God is with us. We could talk about the obedience, the holiness, and the truth that will go on in this day described in Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah, the knowledge of God that will be there. We could talk about the physical temple that will happen and the sacrifices that will go on at the physical temple, but as I said, we do not have time for that, so we will not talk about those, but know that they will be there during the millennium. We can see all the physical aspects of the millennium. Scripture tells us that, and we can imagine them. We can imagine what what emotionally it will be like during the millennium because Scripture tells us, and we can kind of put ourselves in the shoes, but we cannot truly describe what it will be like during the millennium because we have never lived in a time where God has literally physically ruled the earth. So we don't know what it's like. We just know what has been described. And I look forward to that time, but I look more forward to the eternal kingdom. Because in the millennium, there will still be the stain of sin. There will still be death. In the eternity, when Christ ultimately comes and calls us home, and we live on this earth again where it is remade, all the byproducts of the fall will be done away with. Millennium still has them. But the eternal kingdom, it'll be gone. That is what I'm looking forward to. So, yes, I cannot truly explain what the millennium will look like, but we know it will, when it will happen because Jesus will be literally physically reigning in Jerusalem during the millennium. We also know it, when it is because of what comes before it. Before the millennium t- will happen, we believe that the rapture will happen, that there will be seven years of the great tribulation between the rapture and the millennium. The battle of Armageddon will happen at the end of those seven years of the great tribulation. And alongside that, Christ has, will come as judge and avenger, as it describes in Revelation chapter 19. Those are the three steps that must happen before the millennium comes and Jesus literally physically reigns in Jerusalem. So if anyone comes up to you, as throughout the years people have since Paul wrote, to the Thessalonians, and says that the millennium is here, the millennium is now, it isn't, because the signs that Scripture tells us must happen have not happened yet. Great question. Jacoby. You want to do it, Mandy? You can abdicate. It's okay. Okay. You get the easy job because there's only one card left. That was hard. I know. All right, what does our church believe about divorce? Okay, you ready? Going to buckle up? We're going to go for a ride. (laughs) You might. I should say, uh, transparency out there, this church, Calvary Bible Church, does not have anything in their policies or in their doctrinal statement about divorce or marriage. And that is going to be changing over the next couple of years because we need to get our T's crossed and our I's dotted legally um, because of the world that we are in and the way this world is going. So um, I can only speak to the teachings of the church rather than their actual policies uh, and my own personal views based on the study of the Bible. I acknowledge that what I am about to say 
as lots of times when these Ask the Pastor Sundays come up, what I'm about to say may not be agreed upon by everyone here. I acknowledge that, okay? So I hope that we approach this subject with grace, uh, understanding, and you leave your Rotten Tomatoes outside. Okay? If you have any questions about what I'm about to say and you would like to disagree with me, please uh, make an appointment. I would love to talk with you personally in a secluded spot where I am armed. I shouldn't say this on recording. Okay. First, let us consider what marriage is. God designed marriage between a, to be between a covenant now, God designed marriage to be a covenant between man and woman. Okay, that's the first that I must stand on, and I cannot get off of that. It's a covenant between a man and a woman. We read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. God describes marriage as between man and woman, both of them equal in status before God and yet possessing different functions, which Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, as you study it, makes it very clear. And if you want more information about that, let me know. Their marriage, the purpose of it is to pursue oneness. When I talk to premarital counseling people or marriage counseling, I talk about this oneness is not just a sexual oneness, but it is a physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, as well as sexual oneness. And the amazing thing, by doing this, by man and woman, equal in status before God, yet different in function, pursue this oneness, when they do that, they are creating an image of God that nothing else in creation has. Think about who God is. Think about the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all equally God, and yet different function. And this Godhead has a oneness to it. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one, the exact same word that is used in Genesis 2, 24, describing marriage, oneness. God, it, God designed marriage to be a picture of himself in a way that nothing else in creation can be. And divorce rips that image apart. God did not design his image to be broken. God did not design husband and wife to be ripped apart any more than he could be ripped apart. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19, verses four to six, haven't you read, he says, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Divorce was not God's plan, because he designed marriage to be a picture of himself. Okay, now, we live in a world on this side of Genesis 3. God created marriage to be oneness. Genesis 3 happens. Adam and Eve both ate from the fruit, and immediately their oneness is broken. Instead of oneness, there's blaming. Instead of unity, they're now cursed to be at odds, this power struggle where one is trying to control the other. Everything that God created to be an image of himself in Genesis 3 is shattered because of sin in the world. Divorce happens. Jesus said in Matthew 19, verses 8 to 9, Moses permitted you, O Israelites, to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. Speaks of sin. 
But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. What Jesus is referring to there when he says Moses permitted you to divorce your wife was teachings of the law in Deuteronomy 24 and Exodus 21. For the sake of time, I'll just read Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. Moses writes, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you as inheritance. So Moses talks about divorce there, certificate of divorce. In Jewish teaching, if you explore Deuteronomy 24, Exodus 21, the Jews believed that divorce was legitimate for reasons of adultery, cruelty, humiliation, persistent refusal to provide food or clothing, willful conjugal neglect, and emotional neglect. All those areas were legitimate for divorce under Mosaic law. All these, if you look at them, are issues of protection. Divorce was designed to protect a partner from the misuse by the other. Nowhere in Jewish law was there any any cause or no-fault divorce. It was these five or six things to protect one partner from the misuse of the other. In Matthew 19, Jesus underlies adultery as cause for divorce, protecting a spouse from the emotional and societal damage of sexual unfaithfulness. And lots of people will point to that and say that is the only cause for divorce, is unfaithfulness. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul speaks of divorce. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15, he says, If the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. When an unbelieving spouse abandons their believing spouse, Paul says divorce is allowed. Now, This is where some people might start disagreeing with me. I and many other Bible students believe that abuse is a form of desertion, abandonment. When one partner imposes such intolerable conditions that you are forced to leave the home, this has the same effect as your spouse packing up his or her bags and leaving. It is abandonment, and I believe divorce is allowed that. You might say, well, what if my spouse is a believer? Because the scripture says if an unbeliever leaves, what if my spouse is a believer and abuses me? An abusive spouse is sinning against God. Scripture over and over and over again teaches how a husband is supposed to love and care for his wife and how a wife is supposed to love and care for her husband. And when abuse comes into the relationship, that is a sin against God and must be repented of and fleed from. Scripture says that if someone is confronted by their sin and that person refuses to repent and change, that they should be treated like a non-believer. 1 Corinthians 5 talks about that. So when a believer is abusing their spouse, they are acting like a non-believer and should be treated as such, and I believe divorce is allowed in that, that, that situation. Now, divorce should never be run toward because no matter what the situation is, it brings hurt to everyone involved. Not just the couple, but the kids, the family, the community, the church. It is a tearing 
of the image of God. Instead, what should be run toward is repentance, reconciliation, and restoration. It is the last resort. But because the hardness of our hearts, because of our sin, because of need for protection in situations, divorce is a last resort option. If divorce is agreed to for any other reason besides protection, in cases of unrepentant sexual immorality, abandonment, or abuse, the divorce is wrong and should be repented of. I'm grateful for God's graciousness because he's able to use even our sin and our brokenness for his glory. If anyone has been divorced for the wrong reasons, God is gracious and he has forgiven and he is able to restore you and bring some amazing ministry to your life from the pain of your past. If you have been through a divorce and you still feel the pain of that, know that you are not alone. We are a family to bear one another's burdens. We are with you. We are walking with you to help find healing and bring good through that pain. And if you'd like to talk about any of that, please let me know. Okay. Those four questions done. Yesterday, as I was on my way to the Children's Museum for my daughter's birthday, I got another text uh, because of something that was going on in someone's life, and I'm going to read that text to you. I told them that if I had time, I would do my best to answer it. Okay. And I have time. They say, How does God feel about our trying to do something about our situation today with voting rights, CRT in schools, men playing women's sports, all of the evil, sinful laws, etc. being pushed upon the United States? Do we or don't we? I know he absolutely is in control and that we need to continually pray for all and I know that he does also work through us to accomplish some things. How do we know, though, what exactly he wants us to do? Can we belong to political groups? I know these are probably silly questions. Maybe I should already know the answer to them. Just wanted your thoughts. First off, they are not silly questions. I need to go on record. There's no such thing as silly questions. This is actually a really, really good question. It's a question I want to answer. Um, so I, I was thinking yesterday, last night, I wrote some notes. This is not a fully prepared dissertation. So take what I'm about to say for the scattered thoughts that they are. And hopefully this will bring some more discussion about these topics. Okay. We can all agree that the United States is not what it wanted, we want it to be. That they are, for the past hundred years or so, if not longer, they've been going in a direction that is not right. And they've, starting to make, they've made policies that are not right. They've exalted immorality and push down godly biblical teaching. Um, And this comes from those who are churched and those who are not churched, unfortunately, leading the United States in the direction that it is going. Three broad principles to, to bring. When we think about the world we are in, the United States, and how we face what is going on, the first thing always When we see something, a policy, a decision, a man being elected, a man running for office, whatnot, the first thing always our reaction should be is prayer. We should 
be falling on our knees before God and saying, God, help us, because we cannot do anything ourselves. He is the one. He is our hope. We need him. <sighs> yeah, prayer is the first thing. If we see, if we are getting so angst, uh, angsted, angsted isn't a word, if we're getting so emotional about everything that's going on, and we should be, we should be flocking to prayer meetings. And if we can't make it to Wednesday nights, maybe start one of our own, invite people to our house. We of the people of God should be pursuing God together to seek change for what is going on. If our first response is to petition someone or yell at a TV screen or do this or do that, and it's not prayer, something is wrong. So first response for all things is prayer. So now, two principles to take consideration after we pray. First principle is what's called sovereign subjects. If I asked you who is the king in America, what would you say? God, okay, that's nice. And yes, he is, he is ultimately in control. But what is it? Our leaders, president, Congress, good state legislatures, our mayor, city councilmen, even people who go to our church who are on the city council. Good. So they, they are, yes, good, good. How? Now. Chuck. In my life, I look at Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. He is king. He is king in our life. But unfortunately, he is not on the throne of the United States. No. Political theory. Now I've got to step away from Scripture. I need to talk about political theory a little bit. When, when we consider, this is my background. I got my bachelor's degree in political science, so I geek over this stuff. So, sorry. All right. Political theory. When you think about the United States, Great Britain, nations like this where we are called democratic republics, where we elect people to rule over us. The government is considered authority because we follow the laws that they make. But we follow the laws that they make. We don't follow them. We follow the laws that they make. Every couple of years, we turn around and we vote them in or out depending on the laws that they make, whether we like it or not. So there are three kings, in political theory, three kings in a democratic republic. First king is the elected officials because they carry authority with them. The second king is the law because ultimately that is what we live by. The third king is the people because the people have the ultimate authority on who to vote in and out of office. So if anyone comes to you and asks you who is the king in America, now you know the answer. Elected officials, the law, the people. As such, since we are the people, we carry the term sovereign subjects. We have sovereignty in order because we have authority to remove people in and out of office. And we, have, we are subjects because we are under the law. We are both. So, king, we have responsibilities in our nation because we have a sovereign position to work in our nation 
according to that responsibility that God has given. If you go through all the teachings about kings in Scripture, we can apply them and say, yes, our president should live that way, our Congress should live that way, the Supreme Court should live that way, the state legislature should live that way, and we should live that way too. We have a duty before God to work towards godly policies, to lead the people around us in a way that glorifies him. And when godly policies are not being pursued, we have the duty before God to do everything that is within the law to change those. Because that is our duty as king. I think about three of my political heroes, so to speak. One is William Wilberforce. Uh, many people know him. Uh, he very, uh, became very popular because of a movie that came out, Amazing Grace. He was the one who helped lead, and it was actually talked about in the video today during announcements. Uh, he helped lead England to abolishing the slave trade. He, when he was uh, lower 20s, battled God's call, and he says, I feel two calls on my life. One is to go into the ministry and become a preacher, and the other is to go into politics. And ultimately he said, I think I can do more good right now. What God is calling me to do is go in politics and to do something about this issue. And so he did. He took the responsibility that God had given as a sovereign subject in England to bring good in that situation, to change his nation because of his faith in Jesus Christ and because the place that God had given him in a republic that England was. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, another one of my heroes, uh, lived in Germany during World War II. Growing up, he had always called himself a German Christian because he was German and he was a Christian. Then when Hitler came into power, he realized he had to make a decision. Was he a German first or was he a Christian first? And he realized that he is a Christian first before he is a German and his duty was, not, was to follow Jesus and not his country. And once he made that decision, he did everything in his power to live that out. I did not agree with lots of the things he did because he took law in his own hands and worked to assassinate Adolf Hitler. And he was caught for that and he died in the concentration camp for that decision. But he made the decision that he was a Christian and he was going to go work for the good of his nation as a Christian first and not a German when his nation was going the wrong direction. We in the United States, as Christians, are going to have to come to that point. Are we a Christian first or American first? And what will we do about that? Another of my heroes is a guy by the name of Martin Niemuller. Anyone ever heard of Martin Niemuller? No? Mm -mm. No one has ever had, no one, except for really geeky people who love history. He lived at the same time Dietrich Bonhoeffer did. He was a Christian. He helped Dietrich Bonhoeffer start the Confessing Church, which was the, so Hitler had his state church that most of the Christians in, in Germany, sorry, slipped there, most of the Christians in Germany followed and because that was a good, if you were a good German, you were part of this church. Bonhoeffer and Niemuller started the Confessing Church, and they made this statement saying, this is what we believe about Jesus, the Bible, all this sorts of stuff, and we believe that Germany 
and the state church and Hitler is doing it all wrong and we stand against them. Martin Niemuller said, I'm going to do everything I can to work within the situation that I've been given to bring good, to, to call my nation back to what is biblically sound. And I'm going to do it within the laws that are given in a way that shows Christian charity in all things. He actually became really good friends with Adolf Hitler. And he would tell Adolf Hitler, nose to nose, that what you're doing is wrong. What you're doing to the Jews is wrong. The policies you're making, all wrong. And he was never killed for it, amazingly. He used the position he was given. He never stopped telling truth. And he lived through the war. And he helped bring Germany back to godliness and belief through that. Interesting life. You should study Martin E. Mueller. All these people said, I am a Christian and I'm going to work in the situation I am given to bring about Christian policies, whether they accept them or not. Now, um, so, first principle. We are sovereign subjects in democratic republic. We have the responsibility under God to work towards good because we, ha- we know Jesus. The second principle is balance. We realize that Christ is the one who works, not us. He uses us as kings in our country, but he is the one who does things. And if our focus as Christians is more on politics than the gospel, something is wrong. We must have the balance. That yes, God has placed us here in America to do, to, 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 to take our responsibility seriously and live in our government system in a way that shows Christ and that we, we pursue these good policies. But if our focus is more on changing government and politics than the gospel, something is wrong. Because we believe that true justice will not happen until Jesus Christ again comes again. We cannot make a utopia here on earth. The United States has never been or will never be a utopia. Our goal is to show pictures of eternity while we are here on earth. To hopefully enact policies that show God so that we can turn around and tell people about God. Chuck Colson went on record in saying, he, he loved saying this phrase, that politics is downstream from culture. Our government will only be good, as good as the people in our nation since we are a democratic republic. And if the majority of people in our nation do not know God or care about him, our government's going to reflect their policies, not our own. We cannot expect an ungodly people to accept godly policies. Which brings me to a little bit about my testimony. Because I got my bachelor's in political science. I had the next 30 years planned out. I was gonna go and get my master's and doctorate in political science, and then go on, work my way up, become Secretary of State of the United States. That was my goal. Other people said I should have ran for president. I still have people who say they'll vote for me if I run. Um, But my goal was Secretary of State. But in the middle of college, something started happening. And I started realizing my goal to go into politics was to change the United States, to make it a better nation, to make it a more godly nation. 
And I realized that you can't work that way. You can't change politics in order to change people's hearts. And you all know that. You have to change people's hearts in order to change the government. And that's why I left politics behind, even though I'm now on the school board. I left politics behind, went to the ministry, so that hopefully through the grace of God I can change one person's heart. And that should be all of our goal. So yes, when you look at the TV screen, when you hear the radio, you read the news, and you get all emotional and say, what are we doing? Drop on our knees, pray, seek God. Then go outside and see if you can change one person's heart. And if we all try to change someone's heart, that they would turn to Jesus. And we multiply ourselves that way. Policies will start changing on the top. We do what we can as kings to change those policies, but our first responsibility is to turn and point someone to Christ so the world might know him. There's so much more I have to say about that, but I run out of time. Think about more questions. If you have any more on that subject, you'd like to talk to me about anything, I would love to talk to any of these subjects. Hopefully it brought up more questions that we can talk about as we all help each other follow God and live in a way that shows him. Um, you got a praise, Sandy? Okay. I did hear that. Nebraska did pass the Convention of States. Mm-hmm. We'll talk, I'll tell you about it, Chuck. Okay. Yeah. Sometime when you're not busy, would you come to my house and talk to me? Yeah. And uh, there was something else. I can't remember what it was. I will. You remember. We'll talk. It'll be good. I'm always available to talk. May not be right when you ask me, but I will always make time to talk to people because that's what I'm here for. All right, David. Where you at? There you are. You're right in front of me. Go ahead, lead us in the last song.